I don't know how to describe it, but I, I really lose myself in the work and I can hear myself breathing and I'm I'm just moving as I'm working. I don't know if that makes any sense to you or your listeners, but <laughs> I, I really it. enjoy the process. That's a long way of saying I enjoy the process of the work. Black creativity is unstoppable. The Studio Noise podcast takes you into the studio with Black artists and creatives making the art that moves the culture. You get to feel all the inspiration, technique, and passion behind the people making paintings, making sculptures, making prints, making noise. It's the Studio Noise podcast with your host, Jamal Barber. It's the noise. Yes, it's your boy, Jay Barber. What are you thinking about? When you go into the studio, whether you're in the basement like your boy or a swanky print studio out in Baltimore, you go in as you, however you identify, it's still you. So what drives you? Today, we got a fantastic guest, printmaker Deborah Grayson. And as you listen, you'll hear what drives her. You'll see how she can look at old photos and start to connect it to histories and symbols and cultures. You feel a genuine love for black people. You feel her curiosity. And need to explore. And today you get a piece of all the black women that make the world go round. You hear it in her voice. That strong, that strength, that soul is good for you. So I, I love to hear it. So I hope you love to hear it too. We talk about printmaking. We nerd out a little bit on printmaking, honestly. <laughs> get into the techniques and inks a, a little bit. I appreciate that kind of stuff because you know your boy love to printmaking. You know I love it. We talk about her research into the hidden histories of black folks, creating new worlds for black people and talk about how she expresses herself. All the good stuff, all the good stuff that goes along with the thing that we do. It's Studio Noise, the voice of black art. It's just four more episodes left in this season. You know, I managed the season according to my academic school year, not the, <laughs> not the regular school year. You know, I got to take a few weeks to make sure my classes is all loaded up and on track and then of course as always it's a new season it's a new season new noise right back at you in september i'll re i'll remix and remaster a couple episodes to keep you going so it's not just that long break because when i updated the website all the episodes then go into the apple and spotify feed so if you fans of the podcast you listen on spotify and apple you don't have access to the entire archives of what we got so i'm remixing reloading some of that stuff up for you so you can get used to it because some of y'all came in. Y'all may not even remember Jiggy Jazz. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? That was the good old days <laughs> way back in the day. But I'll be back with new season soon, 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 soon. So if you got any ideas for guests, so people always sending me suggestions. It might take me a little while to get to them sometimes, but I always make room for it. If I can fit them on the show, we get in contact. I get them up here. So y'all let me know who y'all want to hear from next season. We can go ahead and get that loaded up. We'll be right back at you with new episodes or in, in around September sometime. Go to www.studionoisepodcast.com. Check out the archives. Send me a message of who you like to see on the season. Just give me your general thoughts on the episode. I love this kind of feedback, yo. I be getting feedback from people. I sure do appreciate it. When you post it, too, tell your friends all about the noise. Yo. Let everybody know about the noise. Follow us on IG at Studio Noise Podcast. And if you like what you hear, if you really, really like what you hear, if you want to make sure that we keep this thing going, you got to join the Studio Noise Patreon. The link is in the bio. The link is in the bio. The link is in the show notes. <laughs> you can find it anywhere. Just look out for the Studio Noise with a Z Patreon. And believe me, every little bit that you give to me is a blessing. I, I 
I can't tell you how much I appreciate just me sitting here having these conversations. I give it to you. You help support me, man. That's a, that's the cycle of life. I like that. <laughs> and I promise to always keep bringing y'all the noise right to your door, yo. Have you been to the Black Art America Gallery yet? Now, you know, I've been talking about it for the last couple of weeks. My man, man, Najee Dorsey opened up the Black Art in America Gallery. It's on 1802 Connolly Drive, East in East Point, right by the Tyler Perry Studios. You got to come see amazing art from old masters to new masters. Reginald Gammon, Kevin Cole, Frank Ringo, Alfred Conte, all types of people is in the gallery. Make sure you check it out. Then go out and chill out on the Eugene Phony deck. Big shout out to my man, Eugene, no longer with us, but you here in spirit, my man. And we still think about you all the time. And so, you know, go out to the go out to the deck, chill and watch the sunset on the garden, the garden art for the soul, all the stuff. There's so much stuff going on in there. It's going to be a fantastic place. It's the place to go for art lovers in Atlanta, right by Tyler Perry Studio. It's worth a visit if you're in the area. It's worth a special visit <laughs> if you're not in the area. So go on and check us out. Go check them out at blackartamerica.com. They're fantastic. The place for art, the voice of black art, it's only only fair that I keep pumping them up. I'm always here for them, always support my people, yo. And so now you just got to sit back and listen uh, and get inspired by this one, yo. This is a great conversation for you. Or you can go on and, and dance on your TikTok. <laughs> Let tell everybody it's the noise. And we back and we got printmaker Deborah Grayson always talking that good talk on the noise, baby. Yes. This is Lani Howard. I'm a figurative artist working in Los Angeles, and you are listening to Studio Noise. Yeah, since you boy Jay Barber, back with more Studio Noise, the voice of black art, giving it to you always, bringing you the very best in black contemporary art. I got a special guest with us today. We got Deborah Grayson, printmaker, multimedia artist, with us on the podcast how you doing hey hey i'm doing well that's what's up yo. i can't believe i'm here wow. <laughs> <laughs> yes yes you're here deborah if y'all remember a couple a couple episodes ago shouted out deborah totally get out her car <laughs> hey go get to work <laughs> so, so we finally got yes we got deborah back on the podcast how you doing girl I'm doing really well. Y'all always rolling with me on my way to the studio. So, yep, I, I eventually do get out of the car. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and Deborah is a tremendous artist show. I've known her for a little bit now, like quite a while now. And, you know, she even, like, you know, low-key helped me with my thesis while I was doing it. So I definitely appreciate it, Joe. <laughs> Oh, no worry. I had to have mercy. I was like, I kept seeing you go, oh, I got to write this thing. I got to write this thing. <laughs> you reminded me of some of my former students. I'm like, let me call this brother. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it, it was great, yo. I needed I needed to help, yo. It's a, it's a whole oh, other good, thing. Though. It was really good. I enjoyed reading it. Thank you for letting me read it. Oh, thank you, yo. Thank you. So, so Deborah has the PhD or working on a PhD. Which one is it? Oh, child, I haven't had that thing since 1993. That's right. Oh, yeah, yeah. She she got the PhD. And so she was, um, you know, took mercy on your boy. She saw I was struggling. <laughs> came, came through. She gave me some great suggestions. We had a great talk, actually, and really helped solidify some stuff and direction um, for what I was talking about. Because I'm not a big writer. 
you know what i mean like i you know i make a lot of stuff but you know as you're trying to move up into those different levels you got to start writing and researching a little bit different thinking different about your work so you help me out with that a lot well thanks but i think you need to restate that i think you're a tremendous storyteller and so i think it's just taking the time because writing at least for me makes me slow down Mm -hmm. and so i think you just have to slow down and really let it unfold which i think you did you did it well thank you Thank you. That's what's up. Yes, yeah, so y'all can check my thesis. <laughs> y'all can go read it too and see all the help she gave me. The fullness. Y'all could go find it. It's out there. <laughs> but th- but that's not about me. This episode is about Deborah. Deborah is a wonderful printmaker. I always love seeing her work and seeing her process and all the stuff she was talking about. Matter of fact, we just had a conversation the other day talking about dry point and cool inks. Like yep. it was a, you know another great conversation we didn't have with Deborah. Yeah. Yeah. I um. I really like the cool. I'm still playing with them. The one thing, the heat and humidity in DC, I'm having to fight the soupiness a little bit, but mm. um, I really, I really like them. I've been kind of mixing up a new palette. So yeah. That's what's up. And and I've been, and, you know, we already on the podcast, just getting into like technical <laughs> printmaking mm-hmm. preferences and all that kind of stuff. So this is a great conversation <laughs> already. We, we own a, we legendary already. <laughs> <laughs> so when I, I got started using the cool inks the one thing i'm finding is that as i get the the bigger containers and you mix oh. them up they have the little bits of hard stuff at the bottom i don't know what that stuff is yeah and, and it and it always in some colors like the red color in particular it really interfered with my print because it made it a little lumpy and i don't know why it did that like it compared yeah. to like all the other stuff i had I have to ask that question. I know that Susan, I think it's pronounced Rostyle, the yeah, uh, yeah. design developer of it. Uh, she does these lives and I keep meaning to jump on there and ask because I've had that same issue recently. I was using bone black and I'm like, what the devil is this? There's this little, yeah, hard bits. And so don't laugh, but uh, I got out a potato masher and I mashed it. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> There you go. I mashed it and rolled it until I got that mess straight. So yes. now I don't have a problem. It's cool. But yes. I did have to put some arm work into it. Yeah, yeah. See, you you know this a black podcast when we start talking about getting <laughs> kitchen utensils to start oh, yeah. mixing stuff Look, up. We gonna make it work. Man. <laughs> make yeah, because I don't bought this thing. I ain't gonna throw it away just for some uh-uh. little lumps in it. Now we gonna get these lumps out. <laughs> yeah, but I do want to know why that happened, though. I, that's a that's on my list of things to find out. So I'll get back to you because I'm on it. I'm researching it now. But yeah, yeah it's, potato masher works. Um, spatula works. So I just keep mashing it till I get it straight. Because I was having a problem with like some of my students um, would use it. You know, the cool inks supposed to dry and not come off when you like rewet your paper. But my students were re-wetting their paper and the ink was just bleeding off of what they had. And so I, I kind of came to the conclusion that they weren't mixing it up enough uh, when they did yeah. it. They just started going off that top layer. But because when I started showing them how to mix it up, that's when the stuff started <laughs> started coming up. And so I was like, yo, this is this is a whole thing. So, yeah, we need to figure that out. You, you know, Studio Noir is going to get on top of this. I investigate a report. Yeah, I'll I'll report back. The other thing that I would say, though, is I think um, the amount of ink application makes a huge difference because my understanding is that it dries by absorption. Mm. And so I work in very thin layers and build them up. And that because people have talked about the ink blooming on the paper. And I think it's because it's, it's way too much ink. It's more ink 
um, then, then you should use with those first few layers. And so when I work in thin layers and let them dry, then I don't have the running or bleeding okay. and it works beautifully. Yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll try that with them when we get back. <laughs> I it's a thinner application in like, cause I have my other favorite ink is gambling. Um, I use both the etching and the, um, relief. And I just find that I have to work in much thinner layers with um, the Kua and it, it works, but it's just kind of a brain shift a little bit when you're working. So. Oh yeah, for sure. For sure. Mm-hmm. Yes. And look at that. We, we all into the printmaking already. <laughs> <laughs> so Deborah does some wonderful printmaking. Like tell everybody kind of the techniques that you go over when you use it. Like actually all the techniques, because you're not just a printmaker. You do so many things, yo. Yeah, I've actually focused my practice quite a bit, especially over the last 18 months when, like a lot of people, I was working from home and trying to figure out what I could actually do from home. And so that is what brought me back to printmaking. And I love printmaking because I think it, excuse me, it uh, brings together all the things I love, drawing, color, texture. And so I just kind of went crazy while I was home. I had stacks of wood, so I just started carving. There you go. (laughs) So so I started making wood blocks. I made um, like 15 or 20 blocks. Um, I I carved cherry, and they run from 18 by 24 to 6 by 8. And, you know, just started doing drawings. And the drawings are based on research I've been doing. Um, I know this is going to sound strange to your uh, listeners, but uh, my background is interdisciplinary in literature and science. And I've always been interested in um, the history, the intersections of race and science and how science is sometimes used against us. And so I've been doing this research on segregated hospitals, particularly hospitals that were designed for the quote unquote uh, colored insane. And so I started doing this reading and which what often happens is when I read, I see things visually and I started drawing them. So I've been doing these portraits of the figures from some of the reading and um, the archival photos that I have access to. And so that's what I started carving, um, the, the uh, portraits of the people that I've been reading about. And I've just been kind of, <clears throat> excuse me, ima- reimagining them into these, these different worlds. And so now they won't leave me alone and they just keep appearing. So I keep drawing them. <laughs> so I've been doing woodcut, um, some dry point. Um, I have been doing um, solar plates. I've been playing with solar plate etching and layering those on top of uh, woodcut, liner cut. And then, though I've been fighting it for the last two years, I have given in and I'm going back to lithography. Um, But I'm not using the stone. I'm using the plates because I I ground the stone once and I was like, okay, I've done that. That's good. (laughs) I don't need to do that again. Yeah, that's a whole thing. That's a whole thing. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) You know, but so I'm working on some drawings right now um, to prepare uh, to to, uh, make some plates and, and get going on that. So I'm excited about that. How are you? How are you approaching the different uh, techniques based on subjects? Um, I'm assuming that there some images, and I don't want to speak for myself, but uh, some images come to me and they feel more like relief. They feel more like dry point. They feel more like painted. You know what I mean? Like it's like different yeah. subjects like that. Is that how you're approaching it? 
Yeah, that's exactly how I approach it. I think um, the, the the process and the technique come as the as the image and the composition start to form for me. And so the first like 12, 14 images um, were really stark. And part of it, it matched my mood because I'm like, I'm, I'm an introvert, so I don't mind being in the house, but it's very different when you have to be in the house. <laughs> so <laughs> right. I was like, dang, you know, I mean, I was scared to even go in my parents' house. I'm like, I don't even know how this thing is transmitted. This was the early days. Yeah. So I was pretty much just um, working in the house. And so everything was just really stripped back. And I felt like relief, woodcut in particular, um, spoke to the starkness. And so the images were uh, black and white. And I liked playing with the, the visual aspects of it because in some of the images, it looks like the figure is actually emerging out of the dark. Um, and then some of them, they're just kind of wrapped in it. And you know, I really wanted to wrap them in blackness, literally and figuratively. So that's what I did in those first images. Now, as I move forward with the layering of different processes, I'm really immersed in color and I can't wait to just bust out in color. So that's that's what you'll see in this next round. I have a lot of color going on. And like I said, I've been um, switching back and forth. Right now I'm working with Akua. Um, but I've been mixing little pots of color. The great part about Akua is it doesn't dry like regular inks. And so I can mix it up like I would, like a screen print ink. And then I put them in um, jars. And then when I'm ready, I have all my colors ready to go. Yeah, oh, that's fantastic. Now, how are you thinking about how you make your colors? This is interesting <laughs> stuff we will yeah. never really get into. But how are you coming to the color selection that you're using? Um, some of it is intuitive, but I do like I um, used to do a lot of textile dyeing. And so when I used to teach it, um, I used to tell people you can make hundreds, thousands of colors just by using the primaries plus blacks and transparent base and sometimes white, although I don't like white unless I'm really trying to go for something chalky. And so I've been playing with the different primaries and subbing out different reds, different blues. Um, different yellows and mixing them up um and right now i'm into a lot of purples and greens um blues a lot of the different tertiaries that you can make from those and so i've just been making them until something strikes my eye and then i kind of take it out to the next level in terms of mixing tints and shades etc so i love color mixing i could be in here all day um in my apron mixing color <laughs> <laughs> there you go that'd be a wonderful show just jars of color just yeah julia child yeah <laughs> <laughs> when you when you're thinking of your imagery how are you uh bringing in these different symbols like because in some of the stuff you see like i guess they're nails it's hair it's, mm -hmm. it's black faces it's like um cowrie shells like it's all kinds of stuff in it how are you sourcing this kind of imagery and like bringing all these different pieces together yeah, so without sounding too woo-woo, some of it really does just come from dreams or just looking at stuff. Um, I mean, the nails are kind of a play on the Nkisi figures. Uh, of course, now I'm blanking on what country in Africa they originated, and I don't want to say the wrong thing, so I'll, I'll follow up and tell you where it was. But they're basically these figures, wooden uh, figures. Sometimes they're about the, the size of your hand, and they're carved from wood. 
and there were nails in them. And sometimes the nails are just in the center and there's something in the center that is a mirror or has a reflective surface or is hollowed out, a surface rather, or it's hollowed out and you can put things in it. And the nails um, represented different things depending on what you read. Some of it is, you know, to represent health and healing and resilience. Uh, some of it is just to kind of uh, stabilize, you know, whatever the situation is. And so um, they're used for uh, healing, from my understanding, um, to garner support, confidence. And so, again, these are all the things I'm thinking. And then when you think in terms of Christianity, of course, they nailed Christ to the cross. And so I have these kind of halo figures that go with the nails. And sometimes they look solid and sometimes they look like membranes. And so, you know, I, I nail the nails. I draw the nails in them. Um, it's kind of reflective of a whole lot of things around different emotions. Sometimes it's resilience. Sometimes it's pain. Um, sometimes it's moving through the pain to get to the other side. So, yeah, the nails, the halos are um images that repeat in my work so so you're bringing in a lot of different sources i, th I believe they're from the congo i was gonna say congo i started to say congo i think you're right but i didn't want to say the wrong place <laughs> I, no, no, so. I, I remember um uh vanessa german uh does mm -hmm. some similar stuff and i believe it's from the congo but anyway yeah renee stout too so yeah 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 yeah, yeah. so yeah, so I'm teaching a relief class uh, at Georgia State in the fall. So I'm I'm very interested in we, and I'm still sticking with, <laughs> still get diving deeper than printmaking with Deborah right here. Um, <laughs> and how you think about your compositions as you're going into, because with relief, you know part of it's going to be carved. You know it going in and out. You know you have a feel for movement. You have a great movement in all of your prints. Like how are you approaching your compositions? I do a lot of drawing. I keep sketchbooks religiously. And with this series, I started something new. I keep uh, a project book. And inside that project book is writing and research. It's a series of drawings. I'll do a lot of thumbnails. I see something I like. I develop a thumbnail. And then I have like, um, sometimes I have cutouts or I have layers of paper where I'm drawing um, you know, transparent paper where I'm drawing each layer and then kind of flipping them down to see what I like to build them. Um, I love layers. And so the draw drawing is really the, the foundation of my practice. And um, the books, my sketchbooks, my project books help me really think through them. Even with that, though, it's, it's not like a finished image when I'm drawing. I'm getting the concepts down or I'm really trying to make sure I have my proportions right and then I go full size I just jump right into it and sometimes it works sometimes I need to cut that wood up and make it something else sometimes it's background um, patterns that's right that's exactly yeah. exactly repurposing bad there patterns. you go yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So, but yeah, it's it's a lot of drawing and thinking and researching and then throwing that all away and then going for it on the, on the main surface. So I find it interesting how when people like get into their groove into like what they really like to do, how uh, intuitive a lot of the stuff that you do becomes. Because mm -hmm. I, I get that I'm like that way when I do my woodcuts. I don't do a lot of drawing when I'm planning mm -hmm. out my woodcuts, and actually I do a, most of the drawing right on the board 
and most yeah. of it with my carving tools because I'm I'm just reacting in the moment to what I'm looking at, right? Like mm-hmm. I can look at it and see, all right, because I tint my whole board red as I'm yeah. seeing the light when the, the wood light wood color as I'm carving, I follow the light. <laughs> so no, it's kind of it's kind of yeah, it's kind of it's weird for me to say it like that, but I do. I follow the light and I'm responding to the light. I'm trying to make that light. Um, become what I want it to become. And so the print is kind of almost secondary to that because I'm more in that moment just with the wood in the carving and kind of the print is almost, uh, um, what's the right word I'm looking for? It almost doesn't matter. Does it make sense? Like the actual physical print because the, all the work is taking place right there. And if you get that one part, right, you can make as many prints you want to after it. Right. No, you're hitting on two things I love because even if I've done, and I do draw directly on the board as well or the wood as well. And, but even with that drawing, that's kind of like I'm working things out spatially, but what I've drawn is not necessarily what I carve. Mm-hmm. And so to your point, it is really responding to the light, what the wood is doing. Uh, and I tint mine a turquoise color. I, don't ask me why. I think I like that the color of the wood as you carve it against the turquoise. I know that's strange, but that's, that's why I do that. Because <laughs> uh, it's like a yellow and turquoise. I don't know. I love how that looks. Um, and so, you're, yeah, I'm responding to that. And the other piece that's really... Um, cool or interesting about printmaking to me is there's no other art form that makes me so aware of my body while I'm working. Mm. There's just like a rhythm that you get into when you're doing printmaking. And I love the freedom of it, but then there are guardrails. Like during the pandemic, I could not paint. I was working on a series of very large paintings. I couldn't do it because for me, it felt like I was falling into yet another hole. Mm. Whereas printmaking, I knew that there were specific steps, at least initially, that I was going to follow that would then kind of open up and get me where I wanted to go. So I liked having the guard rails so that I could kind of fall, but it wasn't a complete free fall. (laughs) So (laughs) I don't know if that makes sense, but it was just, uh, I really like, it's the intuitive nature of the work, but it's also the, um, the presence maybe that you have to feel in your body to do the work or, I don't know how to describe it, but I, I really lose myself in the work and I can hear myself breathing and I'm I'm just moving as I'm working. I don't know if that makes any sense to you or your listeners, but <laughs> I, I really it. enjoy the process. That's a long way of saying I enjoy the process of the work. <laughs> no, no, I get it. I did it because I, I, I tell everybody when I first got to be full time and I really spent time like making work, the first thing I noticed was how I felt when mm. I was making something that I liked. And that it was successful. And I tell a a lot of the students that I teach, you got to pay attention to your body. You got to pay attention to what's happening moment to moment as you go, because I learned a lot about myself and how I physically respond to when I don't like an idea. And that's that's the and you feel you don't like an idea way before you know you don't like an idea. That is so, so true. And I mean, connected to that for me is why I was telling you before we were talking, I can't listen to talking or language when I'm working because mm. it's like another part of my brain needs to be turned on. 
So I always have music blasting. So I listen to the podcast. I listen to y'all when I'm driving. But once I walk in that space, there's no phones. There's no talking. It's just music. And I'm I'm used to working by myself. And I I was laughing because I've developed these strange habits when I work uh, alone. And lately I've been working at... um, Pyramid Atlantic, and if something is really working for me, I will break out dancing. <laughs> and so, you know, having to restrain that when I'm in a public place, <laughs> it's been interesting. But I will just start to dance. Uh, and a few times I've been caught, but you know, <laughs> it's not that I can't dance because I don't necessarily want anybody watching me do it. <laughs> right, right, right. I right. feel like they're looking at you like right, all the like, time. What is yeah. She doing? Yeah. <laughs> like watch it Deborah about to start dancing look at it <laughs> <laughs> and it looks really crazy right now with a mask on and everything so. <laughs> she losing it she losing yep. it <laughs> I told you <laughs> yeah that's interesting yo big shout out to Pyramid Atlantic yo I do I definitely want to come up there and work at Pyramid like I don't know I want to do a tour and work at all these print shops that's around yeah that, that, do it. if they would let me do it as you just have Jay Barber post up studio noise in your in your print shop. If y'all listening, holler at y'all boy. But yeah, yeah but it, I don't know. It just feels because the the energy. I work at Atlanta Printmaker Studio, and you know a little mm-hmm. bit about Atlanta Printmaker. Yeah, I went. I worked there for a while before I left. Yeah. Yeah, and so you know, I I love it, and I love being able to talk to people. Um, and I think part of that for me, printmaking related to community because of that, because we're all in this space around these machines that you know none of us can really afford and have a you know three thousand pound <laughs> uh press right sitting in your living room so it's like you know so you go to these spaces and like that's where we congregate we communicate we learn mm-hmm. well you can you know if you feel confused and if you trust the person that's with you uh <laughs> in the studio you can ask them like hey what do you what um this is happening i got misregistered it's shifting at the back you know like all the little stuff that we can share information you know what I mean? Yeah, no. I mean, I'm largely self-taught when it comes to printmaking, and I have made some wonderful friends through printmaking and folks who kind of coach me through things. I mean, even with the lithography, I have a friend who's going to, um, Fleming, who's going to be working with me um, just to kind of, you know, make sure I'm all right. Because <laughs> I, I know the basics, and I've done it before, <clears throat> but she'll be there to kind of help me not mess up anything so yeah i'm looking forward to that that's yeah. what's up yo. i love i love that kind of stuff and so mm-hmm. let's get into your work a little bit more as we talk about um on your website you mentioned how you are talking about black women experiences mm-hmm. um tell me about that like black women experiences in the arts in life like <laughs> I, well, give me your observations your thoughts oh man that's a big question um I am interested in a range of things, but mainly I've been thinking a lot about joy and presence. And, you know, I look at the ways that we, our images are sometimes rendered um, in American public discourse. And I made the decision, I don't want... And I don't know how this is going to sound. So if I start messing up, just you pull me back, pull me back. But I don't want um, my work to always be perceived as responding to 
white supremacist delusion or other people's ideas of who we are. I'm more interested in who we see ourselves as, as black women and how we talk and how we think and how we want to present ourselves. And so, you know, rather than having this uh, dialogue that is from the outside in, I'm really trying to look from the inside out. And, um, you know, it's been really interesting to, to think that way because it's so easy to always be responding to that. But, it, you know, and I've, I've said this before, um, Toni Morrison talks about racism being a distraction. It distracts you from your work. And while I'm very aware of the society that we're living in, I just, I don't always want to be responding to that because there's so much, you know, yes, our lives have had, we've had to deal with and are continuing to deal with, you know, struggle and the right to our bodies and the right to be, have full citizenship in, in this country and what that means and the right to have the ability to fully express the full range of our emotions um, without a care for how people will judge us or weaponize it or whatever. And so sometimes it is hard to imagine just being and just talking about just being. But what I know, you know, from observing our relatives, our ancestors, if our lives were just all about struggle, how would we still be standing? I mean, even within that, there's so much more. And so I really want to show that so much more without ignoring the history. I'm not trying to ignore it. I'm not trying to dismiss it. I want to be really clear. I'm just saying that there, there's more dimension, there's more nuance. And so I like to kind of situate my work in those gaps, in the nuance, in those quiet spaces where we are having to sit with ourselves and really think about who we are and what we want to say and how we want to say it. And so I have lots of conversations with Black women. I have lots of conversations with myself about what that means and what that looks like. And so in both my writing and my art, that's what I'm trying to express that, you know, those quiet moments and, and quiet being, you know, a type of expressiveness because often, you know, when they're showing black women, we're popping off at somebody, you know, you know what the images are, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but there, there are other ways um, that we express ourselves and that's not taken away. I mean, I think, you know, I can be very vocal when I need to be, but I can also be very expressive in, in um, my quiet. And, and I want to be clear that the quiet is active. It's not a suppressive uh, way of being. It's not me trying to hide anything or shut down. It's just reflective. It's still, it's peaceful, um, but it's, it's always active. You know, it's not, um, like I said, it's not shut down or repressed or suppressed. I'm gonna, I want to make that clear. So I'm really interested in, in the nuances of us, I guess is a short way to say that. I love that because I've, I find myself and you saw it in my thesis a little bit as we go into mm -hmm. like kind of leaving behind the reactionary uh, yeah. aspects of my artwork. And, and part of it, I didn't realize like how much of that was really driving um, what I did because it is like these things happen. They shoot a bunch of people in a grocery store. They, mm -hmm. you know, lynch this black man. They, you know, pull over kids in a car 
And it's like, all right, I feel it. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's in, like it's in my body. I got to get it out. And then you get it out. And then it's always another thing. And eventually you do end up having a conversation with whiteness. And, yeah. and that's not what you're going. <laughs> that's not what you try to do. That's not where you want to be and how it's locked in. And, I, and I'm 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 finding it a little hard to transition out of it, like, believe it or not. And but because it became like so much of what my art became about was that. And so mm-hmm. trying to find a way um, to kind of break that cycle and, and find images that really reflect who you are as an individual, who I see us as, as people collectively. And so I, I love the idea that you are actively trying to do that. Well, I mean, I think it's a process. And I, I wouldn't say that you have to necessarily force that transition. You have to say what you need to say. Um, I think for me, because I'm really, really, for a range of reasons, focused on the mental health aspects of all of this and the impact, the toll of the trauma, and the fact that we never seem to be able to recover from one trauma because here comes another one right in the middle Mm -hmm. of the last one, you know? Mm -hmm. And so how you maintain your bearings, how you keep steady, how you grieve, rage, but, but stay anchored in yourself and, and who you are and what you need to do. Because for me, I found that when I was constantly reacting that that is a way to keep you distracted it's a way to keep you from really mobilizing and fighting back because you're always reacting to that thing in the moment and 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 to me in that way you're being held hostage and i i don't i don't want that feeling and so you know i process i grieve i rage and then sometimes i need to be still sometimes i need to be out in the streets it just depends um but i let myself feel um, what I need to feel or say, uh, what I need to, to say. So I think it, it's a process. And right now, what I'm really focused on is just how um, how you balance that and um, how you deal with madness, you know, literally, figuratively, and the different senses of the word madness, how you, how you, how you deal with it without letting it drown you or cause you to lose yourself right Uh, and i think we're all figuring that out for ourselves i think we have to 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 survive and even within that there is joy and that's the thing that's really crazy to me it's like i have all of these feelings like i'm i'm really torn up about the murders of children the murders of our elders um in grocery stores and people making really stupid, egregious, offensive, racist remarks and, you know, not wanting to deal with the fact that it is just not necessary to have weaponry the way this country does. And let's be, let's be real now. It depends on who it is because if black folks armed up, you know. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, up, yeah. Stuff changed, changed know, quick. Yeah. Uh, very quickly, very quickly. And I know that there's a movement across the country for us to do just that. I'm not advocating one way or another, but I'm just saying uh, it's really interesting. It depends on who folks are. Oh, yeah. Where, what, how people feel about the issue. Hi, 
I'm Janelle Logan, Creative Director at McCall Center in Charlotte, North Carolina, and you're listening to Studio Noise. Oh man, you remember during the election they had like uh, uh, <laughs> an armed Black Panther said, quote oh, unquote, yeah. was standing by the voting booth. He was nowhere near the voting booth, but just the image of him, the yeah. idea that he was there frightened enough people that they changed stuff. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like, yep. that, and you know, that was just a few years ago. That, that ain't the 1960s when they did much worse. Back in right. back in the day, well, I mean, so. even in Georgia with open carry, I don't know if you remember. I was still living there at the time. There's a brother in the grocery store. He was armed. The white dude walked up to him and asked him if he had a permit, as if he had a right to ask him that. <laughs> and so, long story short, they drew down on each other. Who do you think got arrested? Hey, we all know who got arrested. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> again, it depends on yeah. who you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And, and uh, this that made me think about something you said in your Hello Print Friend interview. Should big shout out to Miranda and Hello Print Friend. He's great. Um, where you were talking about the lens in which a lot of these documentations um, were taken was was not a true lens that that lens itself was biased. Tell me about that little piece. You would talk about um, the photographs that you found at this hospital. Yeah, so I've been um, looking at photos um, from archives uh, related to the hospitals that I mentioned at the top of our conversation these segregated hospitals that were uh, defined as for the, the criminally and uh, what is it? Not criminally, the, uh, the colored insane. And, um, you know, it was really interesting. I've been studying photography lately and um, it's really interesting to me that as photography was being founded at around the same time that racialized science is being founded and that, um, these photographs were often used to justify, explain, um, support notions in science about who Black people were and what we were capable of and or not capable of. And um, so these particular photographs that I'm looking at um, from Cherry Hospital range from uh, early 20th century to mid 20th century. And... Um, there's a physician there who's chosen to take photographs of the patients. And it was just interesting to me, what, what the, the, looking at those photographs is what sent me into really studying the, the early history of photography and how it was used and how people were posed and how portraiture was done. And uh, so in his photographs, he would just kind of line the patients up together and he they would have like a field in front of them of eating watermelon rinds you know it was just it was really bizarre where they would be posing with watermelons or they'd be posed with raccoons and i'm like how is this related to you know their health and well-being that is wow and and you know and it was just it was really interesting to me because of course it echoed other images and so clearly he was influenced by other images because you've seen the postcards from that era yeah yeah. um and you know the the same things were there and i'm like you know what is this about and so i just started really digging into it and looking at 
early photography, looking at early black photographers and how they uh, were working to innovate the uses of um, photography, how they did portraiture, how they made it more accessible to, you know, everyday families to have their pictures taken. I'm looking at how people were posed, what they were wearing, where they were, what they did. Um, and just, I'm really interested in those, uh, those snapshots, those moments in time. And I'm interested in maybe what happened before, right before the photo, what happened right after. There are just a number um, of questions and, um, around photographs and archives and who owns the archives and who has the rights of ownership. There are all these things I'm, I'm really interested in, in looking at. And the last thing I will say about this is that um, what has also struck me is how often our stories, our images are in a, a, a dusty box in a corner, in a dusty basement, in a library or somebody's house. There, I, I know there are so many stories that we have yet to get access to because someone along the way didn't think we were important enough to uh, it was important enough to preserve our artifacts and our images. And I just keep seeing examples of this. And I think we talked about this, you know, Summer So Quest Loves Project happened because somebody found those reels, right? You know? Right, yeah. And so he was like, oh, no, this doesn't exist. I would know about it. And sure enough, somebody uncovered it. And that's how he got his Oscar-winning, um, you know, movie. Uh, and the same thing with these photographs that I've been working with. They were found in a corner somewhere in the hospital. Somebody just found the images. They weren't labeled. They weren't, um, you know, preserved in any way. They were just in a box. Um, and there's so much of our stories, I think, um, are, are like that. So it's, it's just, I don't know. Even when I go to like estate sales, if I see photo albums of Black people, I must buy them because I can't have those photos sitting there. And so I have maybe 10 boxes uh, in archival boxes in my studio of photos of Black families from the mid-19th century all the way up to the 80s. I really like the, the time period between the 40s and the 70s. Um, yeah, I collect photos too, and the people will sometimes appear as characters in my work. So... Yeah, I love that was that. a long answer. No, no, no. That's that's what that's what we're looking for right there. It's the noise, baby. We we get into I, all I, the I, issues. I can, I can get into it now. <laughs> no, that's what we love. We love that. Because <laughs> because when we're talking about it, we we all uh, so it's so great to have a black art podcast, right? Where we're talking <laughs> to black people about art because we get it. We don't have to explain so much history and context just to get to the idea that we're trying to get to like we right. know it and we feel it we know about these hidden histories and how how much of our history and our story is not told in yeah. what they would consider the canon but we know that it existed and it was there because we got those photo albums we talked to grandma and auntie about all the stuff that used to happen and so we know like, yeah, that's the story that they tell you in the New York Times. That's the story that the AJC going to tell you. But grandma mm -hmm. got them pictures. Grandma got them stories. Right. Uncle Uncle June was there when the stuff was happening. And so you can't forget about that context. And it's so important. And I feel like when you say it here with us, we get it. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Because you're hitting right in the in the sweet spot of, you know, we we understand the context of America. 
And I think that's the important part, right? Well, and I would also add, I mean, I think this podcast, what you're doing is an important artifact as well, because it's a, an important documentation of the the artistic production, the thought, the creativity of Black artists. And I mean, I was, I had kind of started listening maybe the middle of the second season. And then I got excited when there were many more. So I went to SoundCloud and I was like, oh, I'm getting these. So <laughs> I, listened, I listened to all of them. And I just thought, this is spectacular, you know, to have um, this. So, you know, make sure that you're keeping everything and, you know, documenting oh, yeah, it. Yeah. It's accessible in all kinds of forms because this is important. Um, you know, there's just not a lot of monographs. There's not a lot. It's increasing people like... Um, and all kinds of, I mean, from um, Tanikia to Tiffany, whom I know you have on your show, Barbara, yep. the work that uh, Fahamu, the work that uh, Black scholars are doing together with artists and curators, I mean, we have kind of, to me, taken the wheel. And I'm really excited to see, you know, how we're approaching the storytelling, telling the documentation, the curation, the collection um, of our work. So what you're doing with this podcast, I think, is an, another important part of the story. You're collecting, capturing, preserving. So kudos to you, my brother. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because it, it's easy to forget that. And it would seem like it's something new that's happening. Mm -hmm. but, it's, but it's not new. You know what I'm right. saying? It's not some new era of everything is just happening. Like it was people doing these studies in the 1950s, right? Right. And right. and they they have it and they have to work. It might be ignored. <laughs> you that's know what right. I mean? That's right. But yeah. it was always being done. And so that's what we have to acknowledge too, is that this work was always being done. The art was always being made. The critiques were always being had. That's right. And so it's not a new phase of something that's happening. It's well, a, that, it's a yeah. revelation. Um uh, uh, is a light being shine shown on uh, the people that are actually still doing it, but the people right. were never not doing it. You know what I mean? That's, like black art has always existed and, and been out there at the forefront and uh, telling our stories. Absolutely. And that's why I always correct people when they say, you know, it's a rebirth or a renaissance. No, nah, no, nah, we've been doing it right now. You decided <laughs> that it's important once again, to shine a light, but we're going to do it whether you see it or not, you know? And what I love about this moment because of technology and the uh, increased access that all of us have, all of the different avenues that we're taking as, um, you know, cultural artists, uh, you know, creating in different formats. I, I love to see how we're, we're doing this. I love how, uh, especially during the pandemic, I was constantly on IG Lives looking at studio tours and interviews and conversations and people really created interesting formats to get the work out there and to facilitate and highlight um, conversations. And so I see us continuing to do that in art and music and in, in writing. And I'm really, really excited um, to see it happening and to try and be a part of it too. So, yeah. And also I think we they need us and people like you, when you look at those photographs, they're not simply accept them as facts, but oh. to really analyze what you're looking at. What you're looking at was a racially biased, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. Influenced by white supremacy, cultural take on the mental well-being of black people during that time without consulting black people. 
Exactly. And, and you know, it was interesting. I was in a talk and I'll, I'll keep the names out of this to protect the not innocent, but, <laughs> um, you know, we were talking about photographs like this and the person was trying to say that the photographs were so revealing about the people, you know, they revealed a lot about the people in the images. I'm like, no, I think it reveals more about the person who was taking the photo, <laughs> you know, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, at, at least as much, if not more. And um, I choose not to focus on them because I think that's where the focus often goes. I'm really, you know, putting myself in the place of the, the folks in the images. And I'm always drawn to the eyes of the figure um, and how they're holding their bodies in the figure and, you know, what's um, around them. And I really want to, you can't give someone agency, but I definitely want to see agency in those photos where they could. Um, and, you know, I'm always kind of mildly amused when I see uh, clearly these sisters were not posing for the photographs and someone decided to take the photo probably against their will. So they'll have their arms crossed just looking at them like, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> it's just, and, you know, it's just, it's really interesting to, to look and to think about, um, you know, what, what was happening, um, in the images. And like I said, for me, I kind of imagine worlds, uh, different worlds, different contexts. And, you know, knowing a lot about the time frame that uh, our folks were living in, in the, you know, what it was like in the 30s through the 40s, um, you know, what would have brought them joy? How might they have dressed? Where would they have lived? What businesses would they have owned if, um, you know, we weren't in this society that just tried to crush our success, tried, tried to burn it to the ground, literally in, in um, a number of places. Um, but we just, we keep coming, we keep figuring it out. Um, but I, I get, I get tired of us having to be so damn resilient all the time. You know, <laughs> I mean, can, can, can we just live? I know, you know? Right? yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> but yeah, so I, I think about that a lot. Yeah, that's what's up, yo. And so you, you, uh, we talked before you have a basement studio, just like I do, and mm -hmm. you have a way that you're separating your work. Tell us a little bit about that. Yes. So I have a studio in Northwest, Northeast DC. That's where my press is and all like the smelly stuff, like, uh, oil paint and oil inks and things. And so I do a lot of my printing there. I do some uh, woodcut there. But I like to do what I think is the more still work in my home studio. I have like a wet side of my basement and a dry side. And I'll draw here. I'll um, shellac my um, blocks before I carve them here. Um, and I, I like to, especially if I'm working with a kua, I will do that. I'll mix my colors here. So, yeah, I kind of separate tasks. Then I load up the car and, and go. And I'll be like three four days straight where I'm just going for it. Like today I'm sleepy because I stayed up way too late last night <laughs> working. And I was like, ooh, let me pull myself together. So I can <laughs> but the sister is tired. <laughs> so. yeah. yeah. When I work at Atlanta Premaker Studio, I kind of have the same setup where actually I think that kind of setup made me more focused. 
because yeah. because you know when you drive all the way down there and you you go into the print studio you know like i'm just here to print <laughs> like we're right. just, we just gonna get in here we're gonna print we're gonna make this part of the process uh as great as possible as quickly as possible so right. i can get out of here and you know what i'm saying it won't take up too much space and stuff like that yeah, I, I put my project management skills to work and I have, you know, I plan what days I'm going, what I need to bring. I create a list because there's nothing more frustrating because my studio is about 20, 25 minutes from my house. Nothing frustrates me more than driving all the way there and realizing I forgot the thing I needed. Oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> it's like your whole day is blown. That's the worst, yeah. yo. You open up that case, be like, where is oh. my? Oh, my goodness. Because I have my paper and I store most of my paper there. But if sometimes, especially during the pandemic, it got weird. And so I started shipping stuff to my house and taking it there. So I had my paper, everything loaded, forgot my blocks. I was so mad. (laughs) I was mad. (laughs) I ended up cleaning the studio that day. (laughs) Yeah. It was kind of productive. I didn't make no art, but I had to clean the studio. I'm like, I'm gonna do something down here, damn it. I'm doing something. Yeah, we ain't dry that for days. We're gonna do some right. monoprints or something. Gas five dollars, yeah. Yeah, we doing something in here today. Oh, for sure, yo, for sure. I love that, yo. I love it. And so the recent thing I saw you working on was the drop point of the babies. Like, yeah. like tell me about that. I, I love that the image of it. Oh, thanks. So um, these are, again, um, coming from my work with these photos from Cherry Hill. And there's a woman, um, some of the photos name her as Miss Susie. And Miss Susie is always posing with wraps of um, fabric that they're fashioned into dolls. So she's and she's holding them like dolls. And it looks like old sheets that she's kind of torn up and and bundled up and they look like dolls and so i started drawing these and i have a a small collection of them celluloid dolls from the 30s and 40s uh, black dolls and um great thing about dolls is they will pose all day they won't complain they won't move (laughs) (laughs) so i will i mean i'm not making fun of models i'm just being silly but um i have them um posed in my studio window and so i was just kind of doing a quick sketch and i'm like oh these would be like the dolls miss susie would have played with and so i've done a series of portraits of the dolls i think there'll be five in total and i've done the first few um using solar plate um etching and i'll probably do some chinclay and some collage uh, once i'm ready to um, print the final images. Right now, I'm trying to make sure I have the um, exposure right. So I think I'm still a little over. I've blown out some pieces, but I think I finally hit it. So I'm ready to get these babies printed um, soon. So, yeah. So are you building up to a big Cherry Hill hospital show? Like it sounds well, like you're doing like a lot of work around it. Yeah, I mean, it, it won't be called that, but yeah, actually, uh, I have a solo show coming up um, in next September, I think. I'm actually, I have three shows coming up. <laughs> I don't know how I did that to myself. Um, and so, yeah, a lot of this work uh, will be shown there. The, the overall body of work is called Salt um, or Salt Eaters. It's from um, the fabulous novel by Tony K. Bambara. 
And it's it's uh, about this a woman who's a civil rights activist, Velma, and how she has this breakdown. And in the opening scene, one of the elders in the community who works with healing folks asks this really critical question, which is, are you ready to be well? And I mean, that, that's like the opening line in the novel. And I always just meditate on that when I reread that novel because, you know, she goes on to explain what it requires to be well and to be well in such a sick society, right? Mm. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's, it, the, there are three parts to the, the overall body of work, which is called SALT. And the first part is Dreams and Reckonings. And I've shown some of those woodcuts, but there are other pieces um, that go along with it. So again, a long answer to your question that yes, I'm building toward a couple of shows where I will show different sections of um, this body of work. I'm really excited. I have to make myself sleep though, because I can't <laughs> stay in this. But it's like, oh my gosh, I gotta get this done. Um, but yeah, I'm really excited, um, about the work. So, yeah. Nah, that's fantastic. Yo, just hearing you talk about it is you showing so many different facets of it and approaching so many different angles. I think like how it all comes together is going to be really amazing because I'm pretty sure yeah. it's going to be some kind of writing that goes along with it too, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm actually writing two articles uh, right now, and I think I'm going to release them as open access. I mean, I could do, you know, I'm a recovering academic. I could do the whole uh, scholarly journal, but I think I just want to publish them on my website and publish them when I do the exhibition so that people get access um, to them. The first one is just about archives and how they work and um, who's included in them and how to reimagine them and build community archives of our images and our work where we contribute and control what we're building. And there's some fantastic, you know, examples of that that I've been coming across as I've been doing research. And then the other will be about those... Um, those psychiatric hospitals and the duties of care that were not exhibited and how we can and must um, do better as it pertains to the care and treatment of, um, of Black people. Uh, I think about that a lot. It's, I mean, you know, we've, we're still going through COVID and We've always known about the disparities, but it was really, really clear, I think, for a broader society to see how we were being impacted and have died and continue to die, unfortunately, or become very ill. Um, and so I'm really interested um, in, um, you know, patient, I don't even know what the right words are. My, my words are failing me, but just advocacy, I guess, is the right word and support. Um, I have a loved one who has some health challenges and, you know, I've been pretty um, active at being an advocate and being informed and, um, you know, really being on top of things and making sure that this loved one is treated with all of the love and care and respect that is due. And I will tell you that there were moments, there was one surgeon, I had to hem up and the nurse broke us up. I'm being dead serious <laughs> because wow. that person was so disrespectful to my loved one. He was going to get a throat punch. <laughs> and it was, it was funny because it was a sister 
uh, uh, was a nurse and she was behind the desk and, you know, it was COVID, so it was desk and glass. And they had actually made a concession to let me back there because, you know, you weren't allowed there, but I was not going to leave my loved one. And um, I heard the surgeon talking to my family member and I jumped up out my chair and I'm headed back toward the room because I stepped out to give the person privacy and I'm charging back to the room and she got around that desk so fast <laughs> and she just grabbed, <laughs> she grabbed both my wrists. She was like, I know, I know, I know. She just kept saying, I know. <laughs> and, and so he calmed me down enough to not hit him because I really was going to throat punch him. I was that mad. <laughs> and so, but we weren't nose to nose, me and the doc. Long story short, he never came near my loved one again. And um, I had to, you know, I made a complaint. I got the ombuds person. I'm like, you know, this person should not be caring for anybody. No one. And, you know, I think about this, this person, uh, was disrespectful to the family member who, you know, is an older person. Mm -hmm. um, and I wonder, I, I didn't, you know, I've been watching because as I'm with this family member, I'm also watching other people and their care and, you know, if they're showing up with someone and how they're um, paying for their care. You know, I've just been sitting in a lot of waiting rooms learning and listening. And so it's, it's something... Um, that I'm thinking a lot about, and of course, because I'm doing all this stuff in hospitals, I'm thinking a lot about uh, the care, um, the ethics of care, the duty of care, and how we get treated. And it doesn't matter about class or anything, regardless, we're just treated differently. We're, sometimes we're not offered all of the options or... You know, they don't manage our pain well because they think we don't feel pain or that we don't feel pain to the extent that other people do. And there have been recent studies where, you know, in, the, in 2022, 2021, there are physicians who still think some of the stupid stuff. And, you know, how that impacts how we're treated. Um, so it's probably not the greatest posture, but anytime I have to deal with the medical profession, I'm always ready to fight until I'm sure that the person knows, you know, don't play with us. Yeah. You know? so, yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, it's just something you got to be aware of, I guess. No, it's no. It's yet another thing we have to deal with. And so, it, yeah. it's funny that, that as you say that, like, it's nothing weird about that to me <laughs> you know what i'm saying yeah. it's like yo no that's exactly what you gotta do because if you don't you might not come up out of there you that's know what right. I'm saying? and so yeah. you know that's another real thing like as as we talk about all the stuff that we know we know to be true as black people um that's one of them yeah i i think it just it pains me so much because in a moment when you're at your most vulnerable and you're you have to be your most vigilant yeah. and so it's like you don't even have time to be sick or be tired yeah because you have to be ready and you have to be watching them too it's it's yeah i don't know it's why i have mostly black <laughs> i'm just being real all my doctors are black <laughs> so. but i'm fortunate because i live in the dc area I mean, in Atlanta's the same oh, yeah, way, but yeah. there are other places where you don't have a choice. Yeah, you know? it's kind of so, that's the guy, like for the next yeah. guy for like two hundred miles. <laughs> right, and know? I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to make a blanket, and not everybody's like that, but enough of them are that it's dangerous. Yeah, enough and, of them are. Yeah, and that's the thing about about racism and going into places like 
it doesn't have to be everybody. You right. know what I mean? Everybody, yeah, it just has to be the one person that ruins the experience. And now that store or place or doctor or anything is is proven racist. <laughs> you yeah. know, so that yeah. it's not like a thing that we making up in our mind. Like, you know, you know, if you kind of get that vibe, that kind of racist experience vibe, we know enough in America to know, uh, you know, to see the danger red flags and that this is nothing good can come of this thing. You know. No, that's true. That's true. It's yeah. It's you do recognize it when you see it. It's that's very true. You feel it. I think sometimes before you, it even clicks intellectually. You just have a, a sense. Yeah. And I yeah, because even that surgeon, when I looked at him, I'm like, hmm, you know. <laughs> and so I sat up. It was something about even how he was talking to the other nurses. Just this kind of tone, which made me sit up. Yeah. And then when it got even worse, when he was talking to my loved one, I was like, oh, no, this not this not going to happen. Mm-mm. But, yeah, thank God for that nurse, because it was funny. It, we, we were talking about, you know, it when you see it, she knew my lips <laughs> because I she probably felt the same thing. Was, yeah. She was all the way behind the desk. She got around. The, I don't even know how she got in front of me that fast, <laughs> but she just held my wrist and she just kept saying, I know, I know. <laughs> I know. And I think she was just trying to calm me down so I didn't get a charge on me from knocking that dude out. I was so mad. Yeah. I just, and I rarely get that mad, but don't mess with my people. <laughs> so. Yo, that's so true. So true. Yeah. Oh, yeah. man. Yeah. Fantastic conversation. Deborah Grayson, uh, thank you for coming on the podcast. I sure do oh, appreciate you. you. Girl. I'm, I'm kind of mad that these other people got you on the podcast before me because I, you know, it's a, it's a, you know <laughs> it's a, a clear line between me and you, and we should we should have already done this. But thank you so much, yo. That's all right. We got it done. We got yeah, it. we got it done. Tell them where they can find you, yo. So on IG, I'm at Grayson Studios, plural. And my website is GraysonStudiosPlural.com. That's what's up, yo. Deborah Grayson, get you one of them prints. Get you some of that yeah. good stuff, yo. Support what she's doing, yo. It's amazing. Thank you for coming on, yo. Thank you. Thank you, Jamal. Take care. And that's it. Another episode of Sue Your Noise in the Bag. Big shout out to the one and only Deborah Grayson coming on the podcast. We love it. Love to hear it. Got to bring you back next week. We're talking Afro-Atlantic histories with the curator from the National Gallery of Art, Kanitra Fletcher. Oh, it's the noise. Another legendary one. All my artists out there. Stay legendary. Stay in that mind state. Make the work. Make the noise. The noise. Yes. We'll see y'all next week, yo. It's your boy, Jay Bob. I'll see you next week. Peace. Thank you for listening to the Studio Noise Podcast. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Please take a second to rate us and write a review to make sure everybody knows about the noise. Follow us on Instagram at Studio Noise Podcast.